Let's open our Bibles to the book of Leviticus, chapter 22 and 23. We won't spend much time on the 22nd chapter, just make a few comments. But the 23rd chapter has to do with the seven feasts of Jehovah. But in the 22nd chapter, I want to just remind everyone, we will not read there, of the continuation of the rules and regulations uh, of the priest's house. And I'll just give you a few comments on the 22nd chapter, and we'll move immediately to the 23rd. Uh, The 22nd chapter teaches that a priest is to keep himself unspotted from the world. Remember, we have mentioned before that 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 was the Old Testament priest, but we are New Testament priests. Every believer is a priest in his own right. And so we're to keep ourselves unspotted from the world if you just want to make the application. And then only as we keep ourselves unspotted uh, can we enjoy the highest privileges of the body of Christ. We really enjoy the privileges that we have with each other if we do that. And then we find that the offerings were to be without blemish. All the offerings of the, of the sacrifices and free will offerings and, and every other offering was to be of course, without spot or without blemish. And that's basically what you find in the 22nd chapter. So we'll get immediately to the 23rd chapter and we'll read. It says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them concerning the feasts of the Lord, which ye shall proclaim to be holy convocations, Even these are the feasts. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of rest and holy convocation. You shall do no work therein. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. By the way, this was not one of the feasts. This was just the beginning of the instructions here of the fact that they were to keep the Sabbath and observe it. Now then, verse 4 says, These are the feasts of the Lord. Even holy convocations, which ye shall proclaim in their seasons. Each one of these feasts had a particular season and a time during the year. By the way, the uh, Jewish calendar. Let's see, I think I had something. The Jewish calendar had uh, uh, months for the civil year, and then they had a month of each of the sacred year. They had two calendars. The civil year calendar and the sacred year calendar. And uh, actually there was uh, the uh, year was divided into 11 months and they would add a, add a month in between Nisan and Iar, no, Adar and Nisan, which was between February and March. Uh, March and March and April, right in between there. Every three years they would add that month because their year consisted of 354 days and ours is, of course, 365 days in the year. And they would add that month in there at a particular time and they would do that every three years and it made a, a total of uh, a seven, I believe, in uh, 19 years. They were divided up at particular times. 
And uh, so their years were different than ours. And when we uh, speak of the first month here, we'll speak of the month that they established to be the first month back in the book of Exodus when they offered the Passover lamb. And God said, this will be a beginning of months to you, the month Nisan. But anyway, uh, we've read uh, a little bit about those feasts. And uh, let's pick up uh, with verse uh, 5 now. In the fourteenth day of the first month at even is the Lord's Passover. So you have the Passover feast. And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread unto the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. So you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then you have the Feast of the first fruits. And that's on down in verse uh, 10. But let me read it. It says in verse uh, 7, In the first day you shall have an holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein, but you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord seven days. And the seventh day is an holy convocation. That convocation means an assembly or gathering. You shall do no servile work therein. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When ye be come into the land which I give unto you, and shall reap the harvest thereof, then ye shall bring a sheaf of the firstfruits of your harvest. So there's a sheaf of the firstfruits. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted for you on the morrow after the Sabbath. The priest shall wave it. And you shall offer that day when you wave the sheaf and he lamb without blemish of the first year for a burnt offering unto the Lord. And the meat offering thereof shall be two tenth deals of fine flour with oil and offer made by fire unto the Lord for a sweet savor offering. For a sweet savor. And the drink offering thereof shall be of wine, the fourth part of an hen. And you shall eat neither bread nor parched corn nor green ears until the selfsame day you have brought an offering unto your God. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. So they had to offer to the Lord before they were permitted to eat their own uh, own food in respect to that particular time. Verse 15, And you shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath. Now look, From the day that ye brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be complete, and even the morrow after the seventh Sabbath shall be shall ye number fifty days, and ye shall offer a new meat offering unto the Lord. Now this this is called a, a Pentecost, fifty days. In fact, fifty means Pentecost. Fifty days means Pentecost. In fact, we have the what do we call it? The Pentagon, the five sided building up there. So it means five or fifty and has a semblance of that. You shall bring out of your habitations two wave loaves of two tenths deals. They shall be a fine flour. Now I want you to notice something here very peculiar. They shall be bacon with leaven. Now remember they were observing the feast of unleavened bread until this feast of Pentecost. And this represented this feast of Pentecost, the typical of the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And this evil was recognized by the Lord that we still have a, a evil within us, even though the Lord has forgiven us of our sins. And it, it is by His grace that He provided an unblemished sacrifice 
which typifies the truth of Christ's perfections and not our sinfulness, uh, ever before the view of God. God sees that we're sinful people, but He provides for our leaven or our sin. And in verse 18, And you shall offer with, with uh, the bread seven lambs without blemish of the first year. So He provides for that uh, uh, lamb. He provides for our salvation through the lamb without blemish of the first year. And one bullock and two uh, rams, and you sh- they shall be for a burnt offering unto the Lord with their meat offering and their drink offering, even an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. Now let's just suffice there to stop reading and we can pick up uh, further on as we come to the other feast. There's one in verse uh, 24 in the seventh month. This is the Feast of Trumpets. And then there's one on down uh, in verse 34. It's the 15th day of the seventh month. And it's the Feast of Tabernacles. And we'll find what that represents when we get to it. So, just keep in mind all these seven feasts that we're going to study here. For they're very uh, important for us. Because seven, you know, seven in the Bible is a number of perfection. And these holidays are shadows of things to come. Israel had many Sabbaths, but the church has none. The church doesn't have Sabbaths. The Lord's Day, the first day of the week, is a day of resurrection and not really a Sabbath of rest. It's a day of activity. It's a day of ceaseless activity and telling the story of God's uh, redeeming grace. And we know that we do actually get to rest some on that day uh, in between times, but for, for the Christian, we should be active in doing what God wants us to do in serving the Lord. And of course, the Old Testament Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath, was on the seventh day. As far as the regular Sabbath, they had many Sabbaths other than the seventh, uh, the seventh day Sabbath. But that was on Saturday in the in the Old Testament times. Now then, <clears throat> the the first four feasts were held at the beginning of the year that we just read about. And then the last three at the close of the year. Remember, they jumped from the first month to the seventh month to the last part of the year. And prophetically, these feasts speak to us and uh, they're a prophecy of many things. And I want you to just write beside the Passover. You might even have a little place you can write in the margin of your Bible or wherever. Passover is symbolical of the death of Christ. So when we talk about the Passover, we think of the death of Christ. And unleavened bread uh, has to do with... uh, It's symbolical of communion with Christ. And it may speak of the burial of Christ as well, but the unleavened bread would speak of our communion with Christ... And then the Feast of first fruits on down speaks of the resurrection of Christ. And we have a scripture in the New Testament that speaks of the fact that now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. 
And notice it says first fruits, not the first fruit. Because when Christ rose from the dead, what happened? There were others that rose from the dead. And went out and appeared unto many. And so we find that it was a feast of first fruits. And then there's a feast of Pentecost. Uh, that's down in verse 16, 15 and 16. Uh, that tell us of Pentecost. And of course, that's when the church was filled, the infilling of the Holy Spirit. There are some commentators that say, in my opinion, wrongly, that it was the beginning of the church. But the church began long before Pentecost. It was filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Uh, and there's a lot of theological arguments between the beginning of the church. But you know, in Jesus, He said, uh, if there's brothers that have a difference between one another, let them try to reconcile themselves. You know, one goes to the other. And, and then says, if, if fail to hear them, tell it to the church. Well, there had to be a church to tell it to, didn't there? And uh, there are so many things of evidence I could give you that show you. By the way, the church had a, uh, a business meeting and appointed one to take the, in the first chapter of Acts to take the place of Judas and fill his uh, bishopric, his office. And they had a meeting and they voted on. They had a vo uh, voting and they had all these things going on. There's a lot of things that I could give you to show you that the church was already in existence. He set some in the church, first the apostles. When were they set in the church? When Jesus went up into a mountain and He prayed, and the next day He called unto His disciples, and of them He chose twelve and named them apostles. And they were set first in the church. And even Schofield says that there existed in the days of Jesus when He comes to those apostles. The uh, smallest form or qualifications for a local church, even though he may teach otherwise in some places. But uh, I believe that the church began when Jesus established the church, yeah. and when he put the apostles in the church, and then he had them gathered together, and and the whole church was. He had followers on the day of Pentecost. There was 120 disciples gathered together in an upper room waiting for the infilling of the Holy Spirit, the promise from the Father. So we have different theologians that look at it different ways, just like we do in a lot of things, doctrinally. But uh, my conviction is that there was a church already. And the when uh, those were converted on the day of Pentecost, they were added to the church. There, you know, if you have something, if you have zero, it's pretty hard to add something to it and make any number. But if they're added to something, it adds up. And they were added to the church when Peter preached to them. So anyway, that's another point that uh, there's a lot of difference of opinion on. But uh, you can take your choice. And study it out for yourself and come to some conviction in your own mind. But uh, we know that the church was empowered to witness on the day of Pentecost. But there had to be one there. There had to be the church to be empowered or they wouldn't have had the infilling of the Holy Spirit. So uh, we have these feasts. Now we have a, a, a great interval of time in between 
the Feast of Pentecost and the Feast of Trumpets. Now, the Feast of Trumpets represents the Lord's return for the church. That's when, the, and there's a, if you'll notice, there's an interval of time between Pentecost and these uh, other months that tells us of the, uh, the Feast of Trumpets. Let's see when it, if you read in uh, uh, verse 24, speaking to the children of Israel, saying, in the seventh month. And so, from the early time, early part of the year, the uh, festival year, or the religious year, if you want to call it, till the seventh month was a, quite a long time. So this interval of time between shows that there will be an interval of time, but uh, is prophetically between the time day of Pentecost, and we've already had a great interval of time, and we know the Feast of Trumpets represents the trumpet sounding and Christ's return. So we're still in that interval of time prophetically, waiting for that trumpet to sound. And this Feast of Trumpets, of course, we said rep represents the Lord's return. And then you have the Feast of Atonement on down there when uh, in verse 28 they'll make atonement. And, and in verse 32, it shall be a Sabbath of rest and you shall afflict your souls in the ninth day of the month at even. So there was a, a feast of atonement. And on verse 27, tenth day of the seventh month, there shall be a day of atonement. Remember, they had their sacrifice on the day of atonement. Uh, literally, when the high priest made atonement for the children of Israel. But there is a, a future time when they will afflict their souls and that's called the tribulation period when Israel shall be in affliction. And they will afflict their souls and then the Feast of Tabernacles represents the millennium. And you'll find that on down in uh, verse 34. It says, Speaking to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days unto the Lord. So the atonement prepared them for the Feast of Tabernacles. So they were preparing for the Feast of Tabernacles, literally in the Old Testament, the Jewish people. And in the tribulation, they'll be preparing for the millennium. And then they'll have that day of tabernacles, a day of the, the picture of the joy of the future kingdom that they will enter into uh, in the 20th chapter of the book of Revelation. So it's very important you understand the, the order of these feasts as well as the symbolical meaning of them. Now, what did we give you? We said that the, the Passover, the first one, represents the death of Christ. The unleavened bread, some have said, represents the burial of Christ, but it really, for the congregation, it typifies communion with Christ. You find that in 1 Corinthians 11. We took the Lord's Supper in our last Sunday evening service. And that was communion with Christ. And so they would eat unleavened bread for that particular time and period of time. And then, of course, the Feast of uh, uh, First Fruits represent the resurrection of Christ. Uh, we might dwell on that for just a moment. Remember that we said that in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, it says, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. And so what happened on this particular time in the book of Leviticus? 
the the priests would they would go out in the field and they would reap uh, a sheaf of the first fruits, and in some instances it says a handful, or whether it was on the the grain on the stalk or whether it was already taken off the stalk and a handful of it, it was to be weighed before the Lord. Uh, and uh, this represented actually that there was a harvest that was to come, but it would be just like this first sheaf of the first fruits. In other words, this was the first ripe grain of that in the field, whatever it may have been, corn or wheat or barley. In most instances, barley was the first. And the barley came before the wheat. And so they'd take the, this barley and wave it before the Lord. And that was a promise that there was a harvest out in the field that was yet to be reaped. And it was going to come in the future time when all the grain was ripe at the ready time for this uh, harvest to come. Because this was the first ripe of it. And so Christ is represented by that first fruits. It says, Christ is the first fruits of them that slept. And afterward, it says, afterward, they that are Christ that is coming. So when Christ comes again, the Bible says that dead in Christ shall rise, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with Him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. At the rapture of the church, in one of these days, the Lord's going to come and take us out of here. And we won't have to be in this wicked world anymore. And we'll be with the Lord. Forever be with the Lord. And then, uh, after a period of seven years, tribulation for the Jewish people upon this earth, the nation as a whole, doesn't mean that if a Jew is saved, he'll not go up. He'll go up with the rest of us. And the Gentiles, all believers, all all of God's children will, will be raptured. Jew or Gentile either. But then as a nation, they'll go through that tribulation. And as a nation, they're going to be converted and look on Him whom they perish when Christ comes again in power and great glory at the end of the tribulation. But meanwhile, they're represented by this feast of atonement, this tribulation period. They shall afflict their souls. And they'll look for that feast of tabernacles when they will be taken into the millennium. Now then, let's come back and study individually these feasts. The first one we read of was the Feast of Passover. In verse 5, In the fourteenth day of the first month at even in the Lord's pa- is the Lord's Passover. Now if you turn back to Exodus chapter 12, you'll see that this is when they began this first month. Exodus 12 verse 1 and 2. 1, 2, and 3, rather. It says, And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. What month is it? It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. And it goes on to tell about this Passover lamb. And this was the first month. This was the month Nisan, it's called. And uh, 
N-I-S-A-N. Nisan. And uh, it speaks of the first month of the year. It changed the months of the year on their calendar. Because the Passover was the beginning of that religious ceremonial year for Israel. And uh, I have a little chart I think I mentioned to you a little bit ago that this chart shows that Nisan is March and April. So it's the time of the year that we recognize the Passover, uh, recognize the death of Christ, the time that uh, we recognize the resurrection of Christ, which was only three days after He was crucified. And so that shows us the particular time of the year that, that this took place. And uh, so, when we think of this Feast of Passover, this Feast of Necessity must be at the first of the year. Because their religious year began at this point. And this was a month of deliverance from Egypt, which was named the beginning of months. We just read it for you. And the Passover lamb was slain on that night. It was a picture of Christ who was to come and give His life a ransom for many and shed His blood for the remission of sins. Now, the Passover itself is a type of Calvary. It's a type of Christ's death. In fact, if you read in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, it says, For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Paul refers to to Christ, who is our Passover. He's sacrificed for us. And John the Baptist announced the beginning of the Passover feast in a sense when he said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. He was pointing to the fact that Christ would be the Lamb that would be slain. And recognizing Him as the one that would be uh, the Passover Lamb. The Passover feast is of little significance unless we recognize that it points to Christ and then it is very significant. But it's very little. What, what would that Jewish Passover have to do with us if it did not uh, point to Christ? And that's why there's so much pains taken by the New Testament to show you that Christ is our Passover. The details of the first Passover night. You remember what happened? The destroyer was to slay the firstborn of every house. In other words, there was a death sentence. And there was no escape but by God's provided method. God said, I'll provide a method of escape of that firstborn. And He says, you'll take that blood of that lamb. They could only slay a perfect lamb, by the way. It had to be without spot, without blemish. If you still Turn back to Exodus chapter 12 again and hold your place there. It says in verse 5, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. Ye shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month. In other words, they would take it the tenth day of the month. If you look back uh, earlier, in verse 3 it says, The tenth day of the month ye shall take every man a lamb. And they kept it up to the fourteenth day of the month. Why? It could be 
inspected thoroughly. Could be looked upon and scrutinized to see if there's a spot or blemish or anything wrong with it. By the way, Jesus was looked upon that way too. I mean, He was scrutinized. He was looked upon. And they found no fault in Him. They didn't find anything wrong with Him. He said that they found nothing in Him. And Pilate's wife said, don't have anything to do with this just man. Pilate himself recognized that. But he was in a dilemma and he had to yield to the political pressure of that day. And some people will yield rather than take their stand. Won't they? We find them today doing the same thing. But be that as it may, uh, if you'll notice, I want you, if you still have the 12th chapter of Exodus, have you got it open there? Okay. I want you to notice the wording here. In verse 3, it says, Speaking to all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month, they shall take to them every man a lamb. Notice that word a. Just a lamb. According to the to the household of their fathers, a lamb, a lamb for a house. And if the household be too, too little for the lamb, it's the lamb now. A lamb, the lamb. Let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of souls, every man according to his eating, shall make your count for the lamb, the lamb. Now, the lamb was never too little for the household, but the household be too little for the lamb. The lamb was not too little for the household. Does that teach us something? That Christ is not too little for the household. In fact, He's sufficient for the neighbor to come in. Now look, in verse 5, your lamb... Now it becomes from a lamb to the lamb to your lamb. It becomes yours when you accept it and when you when you uh, carry out the thing that was spoken of. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they, now there's more than one, and they shall take of the blood and sprinkle it on the two side posts and on the upper door posts of the houses where they shall eat it. And they shall eat flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Eat not of it raw nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire. Roast with fire. Remember in the old days, I remember back on the farm, these guys came through sell, selling this waterless cookware, you know. You put your meat in there and steam it, cook it, roast it. All kinds of special stuff they had. Stainless steel. 
They said, this is a new thing. It wasn't new. I remember Dr. Kemp, one of our professors, he said the guy came to his door and he said, well, he says, we got this new thing. You cook and roast your, make your roast without any water. And Dr. Kemp, he said, well, no, that's not new. He turned to Exodus chapter 12. He says, that's what they did back there. Amen. The old guy went away and he could sell, he sold more cookware than he'd ever sold before. Because it wasn't new. He could rehearse that story in Exodus chapter 12. <laughs> but the thing about it is, it's a good way to cook too, by the way. Amen. Tastes better. You soak it in water, well, it just does something about it. I know we have these crock pots and cookware and all this stuff and put them in there. And it, it'll cook it and make it done and all. But, uh, where's that old-fashioned way of cooking a roast? But anyway, let's get back to this. So we find that uh, <coughs> they were to uh, prepare this feast and uh, this was a month of deliverance from the was named from the beginning of the months. Passover lamb was slain on that night. It was a picture of Christ who who was to come and give his life a ransom for many and shed his blood for the remission of sins. And we said all earlier it was a type of Calvary's cross. And we recognize that it does point to Christ, does point to Christ. And the destroyer was to slay the firstborn of the house. If there was no blood of this lamb applied to the lintel and the doorposts. And they could slay only a perfect lamb. We said it had to be without spot and blemish. The Bible says that in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 18, For as much as you know, you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. It says, Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who by Him to believe in God, that raised Him up from the dead and gave Him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. So it points to that lamb without blemish and without spot. Now then, the blood had to be applied to the doorposts and the lentils. We're always under the blood if we've got the blood applied. The angel, the destroyer, came from above. and They must wait under the shelter of that blood while the destroyer passed through the land. And God's promise was not to the good or to the bad, but to those that had the blood applied. When you look in the church, you say, well, here's some good people, here's some bad people, you know, in the middle of the road and whatever. But it wasn't good or bad. The fact that the blood has been applied, that's who's going to be in heaven. Amen. Those who've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And uh, that's all we can trust in. We're not good enough to go to heaven on our own. The Lord gives His grace unto us. By grace are you saved through faith. And it says we have faith in His blood. In Romans chapter 3. And the Bible says in Romans 4, He was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. So we're under the blood. 
The destroyer passed through to exact just punishment upon all, but God pardoned those under the blood. All were to be punished that did not have the blood applied. And they would take this hyssop and apply that blood. Hyssop is a picture of faith, for after the blood was shed, it must be applied with a hyssop. They would take the hyssop and apply it. Christ is our Passover, and we too are under the sentence of death. Before we accepted Christ, we're under the sentence of death. Not only physical death, but eternal death. The Bible says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's Romans 6, verse 23. So everyone is under the sentence of death. The only thing that delivers you from that sentence is you accepting Christ's finished work and by faith, believing in His shed blood. You apply His blood by faith. This hyssop represents faith. And God gave him to be slain by the ones who were under the judgment of death. These people that were under the judgment of death had to take, take that lamb and kill that lamb for themselves. So in a sense, we take Christ and we offer Him up as the one who was slain for our salvation. Christ was nailed to the cross by the very ones that He came to... Uh, that, that he was to save, but it was not enough that the lamb be slain and the blood shed. This death of Christ must be personally appropriated. And the Israelites had to take the hyssop, the most common of herbs, by the way, and with their own hands apply the blood to the doorposts and the lintels of their, their dwellings so that the, the death angel would pass over them. We sing the song, When I see the blood, I will pass over you. The death of Christ for our sins must be accepted by faith. God has provided a lamb some 1,900, 2,000 years ago. It's sufficient for all, but will avail only those who believe. It will avail only those who accept it by faith. Salvation begins at the cross, and it's the first feast of the day. All redemption begins at the cross. We cannot celebrate that second feast until we've experienced the first one. And the first one is the Passover. Death, burial, and resurrection. And it can never come except through the blood. And separation to God can never come but through the blood. We can never be saved by reformation or a good life. We must go by the way of the cross. Remember, we have another song. The way of the cross leads home. There's no other way but what? This. Someone, you find people say, well, I'll just reform my life or change my life. You won't change it. Let God change it. If you want to change, well, you better look to a higher power because we do not... The Bible says, it is not in man to direct his steps. Well, if it's not in man, where are we going to find direction? We're going to find it in the Lord. And when we look to Him by faith, He will direct our steps. He'll change our lives. And the Bible says, if any man be in Christ, 
He is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. He will change your life and make it what it ought to be instead of what it is. What it is is not very good. What mine was was not very good. And I don't mean by that I'd gone to the depths of sin. I just wasn't uh, one of God's children. And that was very young and early in life, but I realized I needed the Lord. Didn't know much about it. I heard John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And by the way, that's enough for children. It's enough for grown people. You realize you need Him. And you accept Him as your Savior. We can never be saved by reformation. Judgment is impending. They were under the sentence of judgment. The death angel was going to come. The firstborn of every house was going to die. The physical death of the firstborn in Egypt is prophetic of the awful death, second death, that awaits those who do not come under the sheltering blood. You read in Revelation chapter 20, and there's a great white throne judgment for those who have not been under the blood. The Lamb is slain, the blood is shed, the offering of salvation is given. Now it's up to the individual. Remember, it was said, what will you do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? And what people do with Him? You know, I'm humbled day in and day out before the Lord to say, Lord, I, I have nothing of my own to offer for my salvation. I have only Christ who offered Himself for my salvation. Amen. And I'm trusting in no one else other than Jesus. I'm trusting, trusting in nothing else but His shed blood. No one else. The Bible says, Neither is there salvation in any other for there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So there's no other to look to. And then the Bible tells us that, that in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. That's Colossians 1 verse 14 and then another one very much akin to it. Ephesians 1 7 says, In whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. So there, And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There is no forgiveness. So, every individual today, knowing that this Passover points to Christ's death, and the hyssop represents the hyssop of faith, whereby we apply that, we must put our faith in what Christ's death represents for us. The Gospel is how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. He was buried and rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the simple Gospel. Amen. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And that's what every believer must embrace is Christ's death and resurrection. <clears throat> and so it's up to the individual. The Feast of Unleavened Bread comes immediately after the Passover. We read that, didn't we? Immediately after the Passover on the 14th day, the week of unleavened bread began at, on the 15th day. And so there was a new uh, 
thing happening to the Israelite. He was to put away all leaven from their dwellings. Leaven is a picture of evil, a sin. They were to eat only unleavened bread for seven days. The whole house was to be swept in every corner and every crevice and every cubby hole. No one was to have a speck of leaven that would remain in the house. It was to be completely gone. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread was to be carried on seven days. And leaven is always symbolical of that which is evil. It, it never symbolizes that which is good. Leaven never signifies gospel virtue. You know, some have taken the, the parable of the, uh, the parables of the kingdom of heaven where the woman took the leaven and put it in, in her meal and it leavened the whole lump representing the spread of the gospel. No, that's the spread of the evil within the community of Christendom. And just because we have the gospel spread around the world through the preaching doesn't mean that it's all good. A lot of there's a still a lot of evil, and it was to to be uh, like uh, the grain of mustard seed, and it grew up into a big tree and the fowls of the air. What were the fowls symbolical of? Evil. They came down and they snatched away that which that seed that was on the ground. See, there's evil powers at work in, the, in Christendom as well. Not only good, but evil powers. And so, leaven is yeast which produces fermentation. And Paul tells us, look in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 5, if you will. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. <clears throat> Let's look at verse... Uh, six. It says, Your glowing is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? He says, Don't you realize that leaven leavens the whole lump? Now, he said this concerning the Corinthian church would put away the evil that they had just discovered of a man that had committed a sin that was so not so much as named among the Gentiles. And you can read the previous verses and it tell you about it. But he says, Know ye not that your little leaven leavened the whole lump? Look at verse 7. Purge out therefore the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Now look, 